Thanks very much, Eric, and welcome everyone to Bethany Community Church. It is once again an honor to be with you as we gather for worship in our homes all around the greater Puget Sound region and into the farther parts of the United States and across the ocean as well. Thank you for the privilege of allowing us to worship with you. How many of you, I'm just curious, have ever read something recently or heard something that's corrective and prophetic and challenging and you hear it and then you think to yourself immediately of who needs to hear it. And so then you say, oh yeah, this is perfect for so-and-so. And then you text it to them or you email it to them or maybe if you're a little bit passive aggressive, you post it on some kind of social media element in hopes that the person who really needs the message will see it and receive it. This is a giant mistake for many of us as we live in this moment because we're often thinking about how other people need to change. And when we think that way, inherent in such a manner of thinking is this sense that kind of I have the moral high ground. And so that makes me a turf defender. And then I stop learning and growing. And my hope is that we never become that at Bethany Community Church. My hope is that repentance and salvation are not things that happened once when we were six years old or 10 or 30. And now we're defending turf the rest of our lives. My hope is that repentance and transformation are ongoing because indeed, as we see in this text, salvation is ongoing. And so what I'd like to do in our time together today in this text, in Acts chapter 2, is basically look at a two-act play that offers us a description of what ongoing discipleship looks like. And in Act 1, we see that true Christ followers are committed to continually receiving revelation and responding for the rest of their lives. And in Act 2, we see that they are committed as well to routines and to remaining adaptable to new situations, which of course is very appropriate for the moment in which I've, uh, we find ourselves. So please join me, we'll pray together and then look at the text. Father, thank you that wherever we are today, you are here with us and your desire, Father, is to move us. Yes, we need encouragement, but we also need transformation. We need to move toward becoming the people of God in ways that better represent your heart. And we know that in our movement, we'll find hope We'll find healing, we'll find joy. But our desire, Father, is to move in order that we might be fully in the story of hope that you're writing in the world. So would you speak to us that way today? We'll thank you for it, we pray in Christ's name, amen. So when you come to Acts 2, the text that we're looking at today is the response to the sermon that we studied last week when Pastor Scott preached for us. And as you listen to a sermon such as the one that Peter preaches in Acts chapter 2, it's tempting to think that that sermon was heard by a bunch of God-haters who are living disastrous, quote-unquote, godless lives. And when we hear somebody preaching repentance, it's tempting to say to the preacher, yeah, man, preach it. Those people need to repent of their sexual addiction, their drug addiction, their alcohol addiction, their laziness. And they need to kind of join us up here on the moral high ground that is our civilized, educated, upwardly mobile world that's been blessed by God. And I'm just going to say to you, if we listen to Scripture in that light, it's as if we're already the winners and we're inviting everyone to come and join us. And in that light, 
we're cheering the speaker on, not because we need transformation, but because we desperately hope that transformation will come to the others who we know do need it. They're lost, we're saved. They're out, we're in. They're down, we're up. That's disastrous and untrue. Let me give you a little reality check for Acts chapter 2. First of all, the people that were gathered to listen to Peter were theists. They believe in the same God as we do already, before they repented. Second, they were intensely religious, enough so to make an annual pilgrimage to Jerusalem for the spiritual festival of Pentecost. And in that sense, unless you have made a spiritual pilgrimage at some point in your life, they are more spiritual than you. They believed that God had a better, a better kingdom in mind uh, for us in this world. And they were eager to see God's kingdom come about. And they believed, like many of us do, that the kingdom would show up through the political structures of the day. So they were eager to see the wrong structures torn down, or to use today's terminology, to see the wrong party get booted out of office so the right party could come in so that we could make a better world. So in summary... Those who were gathered then in Acts 2 to hear Peter's sermon looked more like evangelicals than people who are self-medicating with promiscuous sex and hidden addictions or making millions of dollars and then squandering it all selfishly, hoarding their money or some far left or right cult. They weren't that way. They were theistic, God-fearing, religious people coming to Jerusalem in search of hope and they needed repentance and so do we. They knew God, believed in God, desperately wanted God to win, so this text is for us, not them. Jesus' words to the nation of Israel prior to his execution indicated to Israel as a nation that they were on the wrong path. He calls them to repentance over and over again at the end of Luke before his death. And so when Peter comes on the scene and he preaches this sermon... In act one of the response, this is what we see. These people who'd come to Jerusalem are responsive to revelation and they repent. So let me, show you, let me just show you here. I'm reading in Acts chapter two, Peter has preached this amazing sermon. And then when he's done preaching the sermon, it says in the text, uh, when they heard this, they were pierced to the heart and said to Peter and the apostles, what should we do? Great question. But let's start here. Very interesting observation. When they heard Peter preach, they weren't defensive. They didn't assume that the message was for, uh, was for someone else. We read that when they heard it, their hearts were pierced. Literally, their hearts were ripped open. And this shows me that in spite of the fact that they were severely misguided... These people had enough humility to change course when convicted by the Holy Spirit that the pathway they were on was wrong. Some time ago, about five years ago, my wife and I uh, took some time off and we went hiking in the Alps. And uh, when we were hiking in the Alps, uh, there were several times when we're trying to be on a particular trail and we weren't actually sure that we were on the right trail. Uh, at one point there was a sign that said the trail that we wanted was this way and then a sign right next to it that said that the trail that we wanted was this way. And we didn't know which way to go. And then I'll never forget in my guidebook, here's the description for finding our trailhead once as we were leaving a town trying to get back on the trail. This is what the, this is what the book says. Go south down the main street in town 
and at the large linden tree before the last house on the right, head into the forest on a faint trail. Go 300 meters, and then just after 300 meters, you'll see a large rock. And if you look carefully, shortly after the, uh, the large rock, you'll see a hidden trail to the right. Follow it, it'll take you to the main trail. Now, if, you're, if that's your description, then when you're walking out, let me tell you, you're paying attention, right? And, and it's this paying attention that is our situation today and was their situation then. This is for the nation of Israel then, for us now, a season of ambiguity. And in ambiguous times, we're not absolutely positively sure that we're on the right track. We turn the news on, we're not sure what to believe. Well, we hear conspiracy theories, we're not sure what to do with them. We hear scientists arguing with each other. We just, we're just not quite sure which is the right way to go. It's a season of ambiguity. And then uh, the other thing that you see here with these people that's so interesting, when it says their hearts were pierced open, I discovered they were allowing themselves to be proven wrong because the stakes were so high. They knew they wanted to get it right. And when we're out on the trail, same thing. We knew if we missed the trail, we're going to be sleeping somewhere in the forest and we're going to be cold and wet and hungry in the dark. We must get it right. So we're humble. We're not going to go down the wrong path if there's evidence that we're on the wrong path. That was Israel then. When you're in this space of ambiguity and not knowing, this space has a name. It's actually called liminal space. The word liminal comes from the Latin word limen, which means a threshold. And it, it literally is a point, a place of entering or beginning. And so you're leaving what was <clears throat> and you're entering into what's next. It's a place of transition. It's a season of waiting. It's a season, liminal space, of not knowing. We had normal, it was called January. Uh, now we're in a liminal space. <clears throat> coming yet sometime in the future is a new normal, but we don't yet know what's coming. But we're in between. Time of ambiguity. One author describes uh, liminal space this way. Between familiarity and the completely unknown, our old world is left behind, and we're not yet sure what the new world will be. There's a good space uh, that is liminal space. It's a good space because genuine newness can begin here. It's the sacred space where the old world is able to fall apart so that a bigger and better world can be revealed. Listen, if we don't encounter liminal space in our lives because we're hanging on to what was, we will miss what God wants to bring to us in the future. In order to embrace the new, <clears throat> we must be willing to face departure of what had been our normal. Of course, so that's, that's Israel in Acts chapter 2. They were in, apparently, this liminal space. Maybe it was because of the rumored sightings of Jesus resurrected, and many of them who were gathered in Jerusalem to hear Peter's sermon had been party to killing Jesus. They shouted, crucify him, uh, to Pilate the governor, a pagan ruler who actually wanted to release Jesus. And it was the Jews who said, no, give us Barabbas and kill Jesus. Maybe they were curious. 
there were sightings of Jesus. Maybe it was the speaking in tongues that had happened in Acts chapter 2. Maybe it's the fact that the guy speaking, <clears throat> Peter, had not been to rabbinical school. And that in spite of the fact that the guy who was speaking hadn't been to rabbinical school, he taught with quote-unquote power and authority. Any of these things could create openness. And they were open. Because they were in liminal space. So it's a real important question for this moment right now for all of us. Are we open to what God has for us in the future? Are we paying attention? Or are we <clears throat> idealizing the past and simply wishing that it could once again be January? Because if all I want to do <clears throat> is return to the way that it was, I'm not open to what God has for me in the future, and I'm resisting transformation. And you can kind of see this resistance to liminal space when you say something and the listener instantly discounts what you say because it was spoken on Fox or PBS or it was too liberal or it was too conservative or something like that. We're very defensive right now unwilling to receive anything <clears throat> that might upset our worldview. But those willing to live in liminal space are willing to have their world rocked. And I would suggest that we who are evangelicals, we actually need our world to be rocked right now. Because if I can speak bluntly for us, Christianity does not equal nationalism or upward mobility or closing our doors to immigrants, or storming state capitals while carrying assault rifles and grenade launchers. And Christianity doesn't mean just being nice and going to church and ignoring the crisis brought on simply because we're fortunate enough to still have jobs and can work at home and have internet access. No, God's calling us to an, uh, like a radical kingdom that's utterly other than the systems of this world that are destructive, and we can't just paint Jesus on our culture and say all is well. No. So there's actually a chance in this moment for all, the entire planet to collectively enter into liminal space together and instead we're shouting at each other and arguing about conspiracy theories and deconstructing valid scientists. Can I just suggest to you that James 1 says this, let everyone, everyone be what? A, quick to hear, B, slow to speak, C, slow to anger. My favorite word in the Bible, James 1, verse 19. When I was in fourth grade, uh, our family moved across town. So I'm going to a new school where I don't know anybody. And my grandmother was visiting from the coast of California. I lived in Fresno in the Central Valley of California. My grandmother ha had visited me. And I'll never forget, the day I'm going off to school, I'm nine years old. I'm terrified. I don't know anyone. She writes that verse, James 1, on a piece of paper. And she says to me, Richard, uh, put that in your pocket. I want you to memorize that verse. I want you to think about that verse every time you're afraid. What? Be quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger. That served me well. Like, I don't know everything, so I'm going to be quick to hear. And I sure don't want to speak before I've thought about what I'm going to say, so I'm going to be slow to speak. And I want to be slow to anger. Have any of you done this besides me? You see something that really angers you on social media and you're immediately ready for a snarky response and you begin to type and then you find, I hope you find the Holy Spirit kind of saying to you, wait a minute, who is served by you being angry online? No one. 
So if we're to learn together, we have to be quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger, and ask the other question, what is God doing here? And these guys, they came to the festival. There were rumors that Jesus had risen from the dead. And then there's the wind, and then there's the fire, and then people are speaking, they're hearing their own language. And then uh, some mockers say these guys are drunk, and then Peter gets up and he says, let me tell you, I can explain all of this, Jesus. And suddenly it says, as Eric just read, 3,000 believed in a day. Shifted their whole worldview. <clears throat> that, you know what that's called? Uh, repentance. And what does repentance mean? I mean, they said, what shall we do? When they heard these words from Peter, they said, what shall we do? Far better question, by the way, than who's to blame? And the answer that Peter gave was repent. Well, what exactly does that mean? Well, when, when Peter goes on uh, to, to speak, he indicates that repentance is not kind of just changing your mind regarding some facts about who Jesus is. Repentance means to turn away from the path you're on and walk on the path that is God's kingdom. I was living by these values. Now I have to live by these values. So it means rejecting violence, choosing peace. Rejecting consumerism, pursuing generosity and creativity. Rejecting individualism, uh, pursuing inter interdependence and, and community, the price of hospitality. Rejecting tribalism and xenophobia and ra racism and all that goes with it. And, and pursuing instead hospitality and love and service to all people. No matter their race or their gender or their class or their sexual identity. That's the kingdom of God. It means seeing all of life as coming from God and thus worthy of our care and gratitude rather than exploitation and abuse. And it means giving preferential treatment to those most in need. Which in this moment in history are, are the poor and the old, and by the way, the essential workers who don't have health care, like truck drivers and people working at grocery stores, many of them. Preferential treatment to the least of these. So I'm moving out of these values and into these values. And then look what Peter says. When he says, repent, uh, he, then he goes on, he says this, verse 40, be saved from this perverse generation. Perverse. That's a powerful word. Perversion, though, I want you to understand, is simply a departure from what's normal. That's all perversion means. So that when he says here, be saved from the perverse generation, that's what he's talking about. He's saying that what ought to be normal for humans in our world is not normal. There's a new normal that's actually abnormal. And so he's inviting us to move away from the abnormal into God's normal because the abnormal is a perversion of what ought to be normal. What do I mean? Well, for example, <laughs> being afraid to go jogging because of the color of your skin, not normal. Never God's intent. Becoming a refugee because your country's run by murderous thugs and yet not being able to settle in any other country because the countries with wealth and means are willing to open themselves to you, not normal. Uh, not, not normal for the refugee, not normal for the wealthy nation. A world facing millions of deaths this year due to systemic hunger while we turn under crops and kill farm animals, not normal. Addictions of all stripes, drugs, food, exercise, alcohol, sex, not normal. Individualism and the notion that as long as I'm fine, that's all I care about, not normal. 
A paranoia that leads to enough nuclear weapons to destroy the world multiple times, not normal. Workaholism, not normal. Anxiety created by social media, not normal. Sleeplessness, eating things that we know aren't good for us, none of this is normal. So when Peter says, be saved from this perverse generation, what he's saying is, don't allow the values of the prevailing system of the world to shape you. And here's the challenge all of us face in the room. We can say yes to the deity of Christ, the virgin birth, the crucifixion of Jesus, his, his bodily resurrection, his ascent, his return, his humanity, the efficacy of his atonement. We can know doctrine, teach doctrine, believe doctrine, and adhere to these abnormal values. So what God is saying to us through Peter, when he says, be saved from this perverse generation, he's not saying, hey, get your ticket stamps, you get to go to heaven. He's saying, begin to live by the values of God's kingdom, not when you die, now. Because you live in a world desperately in need of what Christ has to offer, and I'm inviting you to be the presence of Christ in a world desperately needing Christ. We often miss repentance when I come to lists like this because we say things like this, well, yeah, whatever, I didn't kill a black jogger. And then we claim the moral high ground. But here's what Peter is saying. Look, be delivered from the entire system. That's what he calls a perverse generation. It's not one thing, it's the package. Leave this kingdom, join this one. It's a lifelong peeling away of layers so that my true identity and citizenship might progressively be revealed. I have a friend who was kind of killing it in the tech world and then he understood that uh, young people, particularly young people of color, will never succeed, never break out of cycles of poverty without good solid mentors. And he starts this ministry called MUST, Mentoring Urban Student Teens, super powerful. Just moving away from this vocation and into that vocation was for him a kingdom step. And I'm not suggesting you quit your job and start a ministry. I'm suggesting there isn't anyone listening right now, not a single person on the planet who doesn't have a next step to take. And if I'm listening to this, and I understand the next step for my neighbor or my spouse or my children or my parent or, or my, uh, my friend who's of a different political party, but I don't see my own next step, woe to me, man. I can't change anyone but me. <laughs> so the call to repentance isn't something for you to package and ship out to someone who you think needs repentance. When they heard Peter, they didn't say, awesome, let us take this home so that our neighbors can be saved. They said, what should we do? That's your question today. What's your step into the kingdom out of this perverse One step, what's your step? And then, you know, in act two, if the first act is this openness to revelation and this repentance, the second act is they very quickly developed a routine and then they exercised kind of remarkable adaptation to the situation. So let's look at the routine. In verse 43, it says, everyone kept feeling a sense of awe. 
many signs and wonders were taking place. Everybody was together. They had all things in common. And then particularly verse 46, day by day, continuing with one mind, they were in the temple. They were uh, taking meals, breaking bread together from house to house. Uh, and they had gladness and sincerity of heart. And so they're together. They're together in the temple. They're together at meals. They're together in houses. So they developed very quickly routines. And the routines are wrapped up in this phrase, day by day. So their routine, as I've already articulated, included gathering together as a large group. That's what's seen in the phrase, in the temple. For them and for us, this was a reminder that the new movement of God uh, that God was creating was bigger than themselves. When, when we gather, and someday we will again, it'll be good to be reminded that uh, Christianity is bigger than just we who meet in our home. There are 4,000 of you, 5,000 of you, 7,000 of you on any given Sunday just at Bethany Community Church, not to mention all around the world. It's a big thing. And when we gather in groups, we're reminded that we're part of a grand story of hope that God is writing in the world. That's why your presence in gatherings matters. And then they gathered in houses and they shared meals. And this was the means, of course, by which they shared more deeply in the journey of living by a set of values, different than that of the Roman Empire. They continued to unpack together what it means to be kingdom people as they shared meals and they shared fellowship. In the 21st century here, that's small groups. We encourage everyone to have a group of people with whom they gather who are asking the question together, what does it mean to leave this kingdom and live more fully into God's kingdom? We all must do it in small groups. And, and uh, this is the earliest expression of what the church would later call a rule of life when we see this phrase day by day. The early church understood the value of daily practices. And there are tons of reasons why daily practices are valuable, but I'm just gonna note two for now. Reason number one, when something becomes a habit, it uses less energy. Like I don't even think in the morning when I wake up, what am I gonna do in the first hour that I wake up? I know I have habits. I wake up, I make my coffee, I open my Bible, I read, I do my prayer and meditation, I write a thing in my journal, and, and my time, it's there. I don't even think about it. And as you begin these little habits, habits begin to shape you, right? Because I'm gonna tell you, daily habits shape you more profoundly than acute commitments. In other words, I'm more profoundly shaped by 20 minutes of exercise a day than seven hours of exercise on Saturday, right? I need, daily is better than once in a while. I'm more profoundly shaped by every morning a little bit of encountering God in the Bible than by taking two hours on Saturday or something and trying to do a big Bible study, which none of us would do anyway, probably. So I'm shaped by daily routines. And if I'm not intentional in creating daily routines that reflect my priorities, then other priorities will shape me. Like if I'm not proactive in shaping my routines, then my time will be spent on my appetites and the demands of other people, my moods. No. But remember what Paul said? Discipline yourself for godliness. And so here very early in the church, every day they're, they're encountering God. Revelation Repentance, so that they're continuing to move little by little away from the perversity of the kingdom structures of this world into a new normal that is hope and joy and mercy. Uh, if you text daily to 64600, you can get involved in our daily routines in our ministry called Global Monastery. Monday through Friday, a scripture reading comes to you and a little 
brief, like five-minute moment of scripture, prayer, and a thought about that scripture. Uh, encourage you to join us in that. This is how we're seeking to do our day-by-day. One way. There are many ways, but that's one. So the church uh, developed routines. I encourage you to develop routines, particularly in this season. Then finally, the church was adapting. We read here in verse 43. Uh, Everyone kept feeling a sense of awe. And then look at verse 44. All who believed were together and held all things in common. And they started selling their property and possessions and they were sharing as any might have need. So here's what happens. Uh, there's this thing called the diaspora. It was Jewish people who uh, had left Jerusalem and were living elsewhere. And they'd all come to Jerusalem for the festival. And now they've encountered Christ. And the only church in the world is in Jerusalem. And so they have a new faith. They're part of a new community. They're in a new kingdom. And they need to learn they can't go home. So they stay in Jerusalem and they have jobs or homes. So the church immediately said, well, we who have, we're going to liquidate some of our resources so that those who don't have can have, because the church instinctively knew then this, if one member suffers, what? Everybody suffers. They knew it. If ever the church has needed to adapt, it's now. (laughs) And I'm not talking about being online. Francis Collins uh, says that this current crisis has shown the bright light on the health disparities in our country. For example, in Georgia, COVID-19 has been ruthless to the African-American community. 80% uh, of the people in hospitals are African-Americans, even though they are only 30% of the population in Georgia. So disproportionately affected. And Tim Keller says poorer communities are being hit harder because, of course, they live closer together in smaller spaces. They can't work from home, many of them. Many of them don't have health insurance, so they're loath to go to the hospital. And so in such a setting, the church needs to step in. And the good news at Bethany is the church is stepping in. Along with members of other local churches on Aurora, many in our community have made contributions to our partner, uh, Aurora Commons, We've purchased needed relief items like tents and sleeping bags to support those who are experiencing homelessness so that they can shelter in place. Uh, We've donated needed relief items to our partners with World Relief. And on June 20th, uh, several of our Bethany folk will ride their bikes 100 miles around Seattle in small groups to raise support for refugees and vulnerable immigrants in our city. We're continuing to uh, offer services through our food bank and community meal as means of uh, providing resources and hospitality. Bethany North is increasing their community breakfast on Aurora from every other week to every week. Bethany Northeast is now choosing to increase their spending on their community meal by buying their food from local restaurants to support their community. These are just tiny examples of the much broader theme here, but the theme is this, adaptation. And so look, in a time of acute need, We with resources aren't called to be afraid and close our wallets for fear of the future. Exactly the opposite. This is a time to lean into generosity for those of us who have. And and so as we kind of wrap this up, 
I love that the message of salvation in Acts 2 isn't a one-time thing that gets your ticket stamped to get you to heaven, but it's ongoing. Continue to be saved from this perverse kingdom of individualism and nationalism and greed and racism and upward mobility and move into God's kingdom of generosity and hope and justice and mercy. How? Open to revelation, repentance, routines, and adaptation. My encouragement to all of you is to take those four things. Revelation, am I open? Or am I only seeing revelation in terms of what other people need? Repentance, am I turning? Am I, am I actually leaving values and moving into the values of the kingdom? Am I developing routines? And am I opening my wallet? There are four things, very practical. Every one of us can take one step. And that's what I hope we'll do. Let's pray together. Father, we want to thank you that you've called us to be people of hope. And thank you that the message that you offer here through Peter isn't a message, you know, for those who are going to burn in hell forever if they don't know Jesus, though that may apply there. I, it's, but we receive it, Father. We who know you and, and love you, our desire is to walk more fully in your kingdom and represent your heart with greater clarity. So I pray that every one of us who hears these words would, as happened then, be pierced in spirit and that each one of us would take a step away from this perverse generation and into the kingdom of hope. And we'll thank you for all that awaits as we follow you. Praying in Christ's name, amen.